Welcome to Quad Life. I'm your host, Brian Bell. On today's show, Tyler Tingle. Tyler grew up in the BC interior and never left. His injury in 1989 never took away his love of things with engines. And soon after his SCI, Tyler was back doing what he loved most, racing. Through the encouragement and help of a friend, he started drag racing, and that passion lasted for more than 20 years until the local track closed. Snowmobiles, quad ATVs, side-by-side ATVs, motorcycles have been part of life prior and post-injury. He also started playing wheelchair basketball in the early 90s and still plays today. He's played wheelchair curling, wheelchair rugby, wheelchair tennis, adaptive water skiing, archery, and hand cycling. He currently sits on the board of Kamloops Adaptive Sports. In addition, Tyler sat as a regional board member for the BC Paraplegic Association and was formerly a Kamloops regional employee. Post-injury, Tyler went to the local university where he studied computer-aided drafting and design, and worked more than 15 years in the architectural field. Tyler was also a speaker for the party program, Prevent Alcohol and Risk-Related Trauma in Youth, speaking to more than 12,000 junior high school classes. His presentations covered the details of SCI, what happened to him, and why and how it affects his day-to-day life. Today, Tyler is part of the Accessible Okanagan Board and facilitates SCIBC's Kamloops coffee groups and meetups. He hopes that sharing his experience with peers in the community can make at least a small impact in our amazing province. Tyler, welcome to Quad Life. Thanks for having me. Thanks. I, I wasn't sure I, I would qualify. Well. I think you have a life that's related to uh, to quads and spinal cord injury, so that's what we're all about. It translates a lot of it, for sure. It sure as hell does. Yeah. So uh, let's start off with uh, this year was uh, was a bad one for the wildfires. How did you make out? Uh, it, personally, our home was never at risk, but that said. If I look a kilometer in any direction, we're against, you know, forests. Um, so it's, it's always a little unnerving. But uh, my, my wife, her sisters were both on an evacuation alert. Okay. And a number of my friends in chairs, um, some of them you probably know of, some were evacuated. One fella had, it was, a, it was a video on Twitter of the bomber dropping retardant. Okay. Looking at his driveway. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. We should get that picture viral. Yeah, it was, it was kind of crazy. He uh, basically just up and got in his RV and said, bye house, good luck. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's got to go. So, yeah. Oh, that's too bad. Did you get smoked out at all? Like you're in a cloud of smoke a lot of the time, or were you? Yeah, the city was those those hillsides you could see that were less than a kilometer away. There were days when you couldn't see them. It was just a, a blanket of 
gray wall of of nothingness. Yeah, we could see out our backyard fires up on the hill. Um, we're we're burning and spreading, which a bunch of years ago there was a big fire in the area near Barrier, and those same hillsides were on fire again, but they didn't have a lot to uh, to burn up there. Yeah, they kind of burnt it all out by that time. Yeah, it was a it was a pretty crazy year. We did a lot of nothing. You know, I was looking forward to this summer being things are going to open back up. We were going to be able to go back camping and doing all that outdoor stuff again. And we went camping once early in the year. But as the summer progressed, we're like, I, I don't want to go into the bush. I, I don't want to get stuck out there and be in the middle of this mess. And the, the smoke made it not that pleasant. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard hanging around. I was getting smoke from... Uh depending on which way the blow, the the wind was blowing it was in my face most of the time yeah but i get these breaks every now and again yeah one day a guy in a chair that lives a little distance from my house maybe like 5 blocks away decided to take the electric front drive over to his place and thought we'd go for a little tear around the neighborhood and we ended up just sitting in his backyard and when i came home my clothes smelled like I was sitting in front of a campfire. <laughs> it was it was crazy. Yeah. Have you seen a lot of fires over the years growing up in Kamloops? Well, I was I lived on sixty five acres with a dozen horses a number of years ago when there was like those eight major fires around Kamloops. Um, it was the other major year, kind of like this one. And being on 65 acres, that was two thirds forest and having a dozen horses, it was fairly, it was a trying time because what if happened to, you know, our area of the country, what would we do? How do we get out of this? How do we move a dozen horses? Where do they go? Do you notice then that the, the fires are getting worse over the years? It, it seems to like, I, I grew up in Merritt, which is only an hour away. That's where I was till I was 20. And I don't remember growing up dealing with that at all. I don't remember summers where it was so smoky that I, I even remember it. And we've had, is this the third or fourth summer in the last, God, 15 years that this has happened where it's been so smoky? Yeah. It's, it's hard to believe. And I don't know what's, what's changing out there. Well, you know, it's kind of a kind of a hot topic, uh, uh, but you know, like uh, our the management of our forest has uh, changed a lot. Like, what do you do? You have any feelings on that? Well, I've heard the stories about how years ago, where they would just if there was an issue and there were loggers in the area, now they're shut down. They can't log because of the forest situation they would employ those guys and all their equipment to go help fight fires. And yeah. they would all be sort of, sort of on call. And that doesn't seem to happen anymore. It's a hundred percent government managed stuff. And then the government hires contractors to bring their equipment in, but then they, rather than empower the, the locals, they try to manage it from a, a higher placed and often people that are inexperienced in managing a forest fire rather than 
use the the resources of the people, their knowledge of the land and everything, it seems to have been thrown out the window. Yeah, I've I've seen a couple of you know YouTube clips from the Monty Lake fire. Yeah, uh, where the locals are like they're they're crying like the government mishandled the whole thing and they had these people on the ground that they did nothing and they were upset with the locals who were doing stuff on their own because they felt that nothing was happening by the forestry you know management people and it's like i don't know you know i'm not involved in any of it to know the answers of what's right what's wrong but it, it sounded like it was mismanaged but it was also a, a skewed sort of version from one side of the story. I, faith in government. It's yeah. hard to say what's done right and wrong. You, you hope they're the experts, but I've seen some stuff happen in government that you just shake your head at. Yeah. I, I don't feel like it's going to get any better, but I guess we'll just see over time maybe Maybe these fires will give the younger people some more experience and they'll start to learn how to manage it better. Yeah, I hope so. You're a, you're a papa. How old are your kids? They're 14 and 16. And what's it like having two teen girls? Well, I grew up with a family where I had me and my brother. So uh, <laughs> this is a whole new world. It is, isn't it? And back when I grew up, my mom was outnumbered by all the the boys, and now I'm. It's been flipped, so I'm outnumbered by by all the girls. But it's it's good. It's a it's different. You know, boys and girls were were different. There's more of an emotional level. It seems with the uh, I don't know. It's well. What do they say? Yeah, when you have girls, you have to look out look out for a bunch of pricks rather than a couple. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And you know, back when you were boys, it was the as a you know a teenager growing up, you you think about what what happens if um, one of those pricks has has a problem. Yeah. And like you said, with girls, the the problem doesn't you know go away. The problem stays with you the whole time. Yeah. So it was de- it's definitely a concern. Um, yeah, I think, you know, the, our, our girls have been raised pretty well. They're pretty smart. They've got a good head on their shoulders. Right on. And you cross your fingers the whole time. <laughs> I have two, uh, two daughters, so they're kind of a bit older now. Um, what, what's it like having uh, teens in this day and age, you know, when the, we have all these fears of global warming and all the things that are happening with the world. Does that come home with them at all or? Uh, the, the environment stuff, I guess, hasn't happened so much. Um, things are different in sort of there's the, the, the sexuality kind of things where there's um, all the LGBT keep whatever the whole acronym oh, is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the big one. It, it keeps changing. So, and the changes are happening constantly and what things are sort of the new normal in school versus when I was there is, is quite different. Yeah. Um, our, our kids are quite open to whatever 
somebody, you know, their orientation is, is, is their deal. Um, yeah. And that's great. Um, before I was with my wife, my ex-wife had two moms. Um, okay. So for me, it's, it's, I, I like to see that that stuff is happening out there and it's accepted and people aren't shunned the way they were back when I was in school. It's sort of uh, an acceptance that we like to see because that includes people with disabilities uh, yeah. as well. So, so I I, uh, I read that you are engaged. Congratulations! Are you, when do you get married? How, how did well, you we, we have no date. The whole thing happened. Um, we got engaged, and and then COVID happened. Okay. And our our plan was. The, the day we do it, we're probably going to do it on a beach somewhere with our families there. And then COVID happened. And it's like, right now, I actually, yesterday I asked Adele, so if things open up and this winter, we were able to go back to Mexico and go back to a resort and do that whole thing. Would you want to go? And she was, yeah, I don't know. Because, you know, we've been vaccinated. We've both been double vaccinated. Our whole family has. But that said, Adele, she got COVID. Oh, wow. Um, and one of our daughters was going on a, a youth exchange program to Quebec, where she was going to do, it's a French um, sort of deal. And she had four weeks. And she was going to go to Quebec. And we were going to have a student come here and stay with us for four weeks. And we had to all be COVID tested before just to make sure everybody was safe for travel and coming living in our house. And uh, three days, two days before our COVID test, Adele started feeling like she had a cold. Oh, no. And it was like, oh, I'm getting this cold, whatever. The next day, it was a little bit worse. And she uh, said, you know what? I'm going to go stay in the room in the basement and I'm going to use the bathroom in the basement and you guys can come do all this stuff up here. Cause if Olivia gets a cold, um, she's not going to get to travel on this trip and the whole thing's going to get canceled. Right. So the next day we had our COVID tests, the three of us, me and the two girls went and did the one test, but because Adele was symptomatic, she had to go get a different test done at the health um, deal here in, in Kamloops. And that was, she had a result. She got tested in the morning and she had a result by dinner time that she was positive. And at that point, she went and isolated in the RV in the driveway. She lived oh, wow. there for 11 days. So and did you drop, drop a plate of food at the door and run away? Or? Yep. We would actually set stuff just outside the trailer, set it on the ground. We would leave. She would come out and pick it up. We went grocery shopping for her because she wanted to do her own cooking. Yeah. And then we would meet, you know, I would stand at the top of the, the sun deck and she'd be 30 feet down the driveway and we would talk across the, the driveway. <laughs> and Olivia was um, the initial thought when she, when we had to tell her that Adele was positive for COVID, she got really upset because she thought the entire trip was canceled. But the YMCA did a great job and they looked into stuff and they said, you can stay home for a week longer than everybody else. And if you're symptom free, you can go um, a week later and you can still go. Right. That worked out well. She did the whole thing for, for uh, three weeks. Ironically, we showed up 
at uh, we had to get up at 5:30 in the morning to take her to the airport in Calibs to fly her out. We get to the airport and they tell us that her flight was canceled yesterday. The whole airport was shut down and nobody was flying out. Oh no. And then what happened was they contacted the Y, but the Y wasn't able to get us the information. So then we're like, we don't know what to happen. They said, well, if you jump in the car right now and drive to Vancouver, you could fly out of Vancouver at 1 PM, but we've been up since 530. Yeah. So there's no way we're driving down to Vancouver. So they said you could fly out tomorrow morning at 7.30 out of Kelowna. Kelowna being a more international airport, it was still up and running. So we get up at 3.30 in the morning the next day to drive her to Vancouver to Kelowna so she can fly out the next morning. Um, so she, we get her there, she flies out. The next day they shut down Kelowna because of all the smoke. They, uh, they weren't having flights in or out. Oh, no. So we got super lucky on that one. So, yeah, we were pretty directly affected by fires, if you want to look at it that way. Yeah, holy crap. Yeah. After my, I always tell this story uh, every time I talk to anyone just about, but after uh, my injury, a good friend took me to uh, Mission Raceway, and he was racing his car there. And he got me in the in the middle of the stand of the inside of the track, and then it's sort of there's these stands, and you can look onto the drag strip really nicely. And it was a great spot. I know them well. And uh, oh my god, the the rush that I got from the that feeling was insane, and I. We'll talk about it. I've been talking about it ever since to 20 years later. It was really fantastic. How old were you when you started racing? I was the first time I went down the track, I would have been 21, I think. I got injured at 19. And so I was back home when I was 20. And that summer, a friend of mine, it was my girlfriend's sister's boyfriend. And I knew him um, before I was injured. His dad had a, a service shop and a garage in town. He was into cars. And I would help him work on a little bit of stuff. So when I got injured, he said, oh, we're going out to the track this weekend. Why don't you come on out and watch me race? So we went out to the racetrack. This was in Ashcroft. And he just had a fast. It was a Firebird. It was pretty quick. It had a lot of work done to it. But it was still a streetcar. And I went out and watched him race and hung out for the day and just, he went down the track. And then when we got back home, um, we we're talking at the family's house there. And he said, you know, if you wanted to get a car, he'd help you work on it. And I could come drag race with him. So I talked to the racetrack and they said, yeah, as long as you have DOT approved hand controls and all the rest of it, um, you, you could race. They said, if you got to get into a fast car, like, um, they would be worried about if there was a fire, how would I get out of the car? That was their biggest concern they talked about. And I told them, you light the car on fire, and I'll show you how fast I can get out of that car. <laughs> yeah. So I ended up getting a, a Camaro, and uh, it was just a, a beer Camaro. Had a lot of work needed to be done, and me and my buddy would go out after work. After he was done work, I was still pretty brand new. And we got it up and running, and I started drag racing. 
I raced a Camaro, then a pickup truck. And then the truck was faster than the Camaro, but the truck got to be so fast that if it went any faster, I was going to have to put a roll cage in it and I didn't want to ruin the truck. Yeah. So then I bought a little Vega station wagon, but it was a a fully built race car with a, you know, two by three tube frame and 10 point roll cage. Yeah. And I raced that for a bunch of years. And then uh, a friend of mine, um, it was actually the brother of the guy that got me started. They started racing snowmobiles, but this was on asphalt in the summer on the pavement on the snowmobile. <clears throat> you take the skis off and you put a little wheeled ski on the front. Yeah. And they started run the sled. And it turned out that I would, I'd race my car and I turned my electric water pump and my electric fans on and I'd close the door of my car and I'd go over and watch them work on the snowmobiles. Okay. Trying to figure out how clutches and belts and all this kind of stuff worked. Yeah. And another guy that raced with them was selling, I got to know him. He was selling his old race chassis. So I thought, well, that might be kind of fun to try. So I bought his, his parts of his chassis and I bought another snowmobile that I took the motor out of and I transferred the motor into this sling and I started racing it the next year. And I raced snowmobiles for probably, probably better part of 10 years instead of cars. Okay. Uh, They were, they were a little easier to work on. They were lighter. All the parts were little. I didn't have to have, you know, big engine hoists just to lift up a, a cylinder head. Yeah. The average able-bodied guy could just pick up and move. Yeah. So with one hand, you, you can't just pick up a big block Chevy cylinder head. Um, so the, the snowmobiles were kind of an interesting, it was a good transition. Everything about them was smaller, easier. It was cheaper too. It's the cheapest way to go fast. Um, so I ran those guys and in the end, like my my race car, the Vega, it would actually do a wheelie when it left the starting line. It had enough power to pick the front tires off the ground. So you had uh, to have wheelie wheels on the back? It, it didn't have to have wheelie bars, but it was probably pretty close. If it went any faster, it was going to. And the snowmobile in the end that I raced was faster than that car. I did over uh, 137 miles an hour from a stop on pavement in a snowmobile. Jesus. Yeah. And the, the next year was going to be the year that I put a bigger turbo on that snowmobile and some ignition stuff. It would have been significantly faster, but the racetrack closed. So yeah, that, that, that why, did, why did Ashcroft close? It was, a, it was a financial thing. I think the economy um, stopped a lot of people. They didn't have that disposable income to, to spend on, on that kind of you know activity yeah. so numbers dropped and the number of racers to the track that would support the track and keep it open it just sort of dwindled away and it just didn't have the support it needed to justify keeping it open was the uh was racing community uh embracing for you to get into racing or were they were they like oh get this guy out of here or anything like that <laughs> it was pretty good i mean a number of guys that I was racing with were people that I knew from Merritt. Okay. Um, when I went back to high school, um, after I got hurt, I took mechanic classes and I was working on my race car in the high school program, but this was after I had already graduated. 
right. I needed a I needed a physics and a math course to go to university. Uh, but I wasn't ready to up and move to where I could, you know, come for merit. I couldn't take those courses in town. So I went back to high school for a year. My brother was in his graduating year, and it was an easy transition back into what my new life as a you know a paraplegic was going to be. Yeah. I, I could go to school all day. I had a schedule. It, it got my ass out of bed in the morning, gave me something to do. But if you had a number two problem, well, I'm going home. Sometimes, uh, you, you know, you just got to shit your pants and get back out there, eh? Well, sadly, that's one of the big factors that controls our life. Now, I, <laughs> I imagine first, first day racing, I feel like I'd shit my pants no matter what. <laughs> well... Yeah, I had the car, and it was just a street car. So I drove it to the track, and I just pulled it on the track. And the hardest part about starting drag racing is learning how all the timing lights work and the starting system and, and yeah. that kind of stuff. That's the hardest part about racing, um, how the tree works and how you stage and that sort of stuff. Going down the track, you know, you hit 100 miles an hour at the end. I'm I'm not saying I did, but I'm not saying I hadn't had the truck on the street or the car and found a little straight stretch where I could open it up and go 100 miles an hour. I, I would never do that because that's dangerous. Yeah. Did you ever did you ever have any big crashes or anything? No. The uh, the only problem I ever had with the car was I blew the motor at the top end of the track. Yeah. And uh, it, it wasn't a big deal. I just, there was, you could tell the motor went and it was dumping water on the track. So I just eased it over to the side and it, it wasn't a major factor. But I did see a couple of significant crashes in those 25 years I raced wow. where you look at what happened and the, the guy was fine, but the chance of the guy not being fine was also quite prevalent. And yeah. Yep, you gotta keep your head in the game when you're when you're doing those. Oh God, I imagine there's no uh, you can't be distracted for anything. No. It, so funny, stupid story. This is a, a, a wheelchair problem. My snowmobile that I raced, I had it set up so they've got running boards, and I had a little bracket that captured my feet so that my feet wouldn't slide off the running boards. Right. Um, but me and a friend traded snowmobiles to, he wanted to try mine out and I was going to try his out. And uh, I tucked my foot up into the, the regular parts of the running boards. And when I left the starting line, the quick acceleration, my feet slid back down the running board about a foot. And I saw it and I'm like, okay, we're good. They're, they're fine. But at the top end of the track, my right foot, slid off the side of the running board and was dragging my toe down the pavement. Ah. And I reached down, I was able to grab my leg and pick it back up and stop the sled and I was good. And I got back to the pits and the sole of my boot had wore off at a 45 degree angle, almost into the leather. Oh, wow. So, yeah, at that speed, it... Uh, Doesn't take long. He's greater. Yeah. <laughs> what's down there. What's your uh, your your design process like for? Do you do off road vehicles as well, or yeah, I've got a 
Well, I've got a, a razor, and it's just basically it's a side by side ATV, and that one is just basically put a set of hand controls in because it's got a gas pedal and a, a brake, like a car. Yeah, not that not that big of a difference. The snowmobile for drag racing again, it's just got um, a throttle and a gas. It's all hand controlled, so that was easy. Um, the race car was just got a set of hand controls, and it was kind of funny because in the race car. In staging, lots of guys will park their car and they'll get out and they'll walk around and talk to guys. And then when they call us up, you start to roll down the start line. Well, for me, I leave my chair back in the pits. So they don't know, hey, there's a wheelchair in the car. They don't see that like a regular car. And I just sit in my car the whole time. So you pull up to the start line and, uh, you know, you, you race the other guy and you get to the far end of the track. And... If you win or lose, often the loser will come and congratulate the winner. So they know my car. They know yeah. that Purple Vega, it's easy to find in the pits. They'll come find the car. And there'll be me and my buddies and the, a few guys in the pits. And they'll come to the pits. And they won't ask me often. They'll go to one of the AV guys and go, well, who's the guy driving the Vega? And my buddies will go, oh, yeah, it's him. They'll go, the, the guy in the wheelchair? Who's driving the Vega? Yeah. And they'll go, oh. And they'll come up to me and they'll, you, you get all the different um, reactions. You'll get, yeah. it's like, oh, uh, congratulations, shake your hand. And they sort of nervously walk away. Yeah. And then you get the guy that's got the 100 questions about, well, well, how do you drive? And what, oh, tank control, what do they look like? And how do they work? And so you'll go show them and they'll have 100 questions. They're just curious and it's, it's all kind of interesting. Um, so it was kind of cool. You get to, you know, share the situation with people that aren't used to it and they don't, they don't live it and they don't know a guy that's in a chair and you share that these things are still possible for guys in chairs. Kind of, <laughs> you're kind of opening up their mind a little bit more to possibilities. They realize that people with disabilities aren't necessarily um, out of the game, so to speak. For sure. And, you know, for me, it was kind of a, it was twofold. It's like I get to share that experience and guys can learn some stuff. And it was for me, it was uh, the guy in the wheelchair just kicked an able-bodied guy's butt. And for me, that's sort of a, it was part of transitioning my life back to kind of what it was before I got injured. Yeah. Kind of cool that I could still go and compete with just a regular average guy and I can do it, you know, in my situation. Yep. Nobody knows or anything, and that's it probably makes it even better when they don't know, eh? Well, it's, it's kind of fun. When yeah. they, they don't expect that it's the guy in the chair that uh, was driving that car. Hey, what's been your uh, your most challenging adaptation, like where you, you know, with hand controls and you talked about your foot coming off on the on the machine, you know, like what? What's the biggest challenges usually with with that adaption? Uh, it's a lot of it's been done, of course. So like the the razor side by side, the hardest part was um, fitting the hand controls because it's kind of small compared to a car. So fitting the, the whole levers and all this stuff in there with the doors and how much or how little room you have compared to a car is a bit of a challenge. Um, the snowmobile, like I said, that was easy. 
The hardest part about racing the sled was loading it off and on the trailer. Okay. Because, you know, I, I can transfer onto the sled and I can drive it up on the trailer, but now your chair is back where you cut on the sled. So you have to plan all this stuff out um, if you want to do it by yourself. Often you have somebody with you that can help you. And then again, you know, you transfer off the trail, off the snowmobile onto the deck of the trailer and then have your chair close by so you can transfer off and then and back onto it again. Yeah. So there's a, there's a, a process. You got to get everything in the right order. Otherwise, uh, things can go sideways, I guess, sometimes. Yeah, sure. There was, it's just kind of a funny story. So a, a friend of mine is uh, Stu and he, He's the first guy I know that had a razor with this with the hand controls, and he's a quad. Yeah. And uh, he invited me up to his buddy's property, and it was just gonna be the two of us. So I trailered my razor up there, and his was already there. So when I got there, I uh, I transferred up on the deck of the razor, but I couldn't reach the door handle. Okay. Open the door of the razor. Yeah. Uh, so we had to devise a way that he brought me a toolbox and uh, I, I transferred my butt up to the toolbox so that I could be sitting taller so I could reach stuff that's just a little bit higher. <laughs> so when I went back home, I ended up drilling a hole through the door so I could get a finger in there to, to reach the latch. Oh, okay. So it's easier that way. So nothing too, uh, too major. No, it was just a funny situation where we were stuck in the middle of nowhere. What do we have to deal with the situation right here? Right yeah. Now? yeah. And that's, uh, I guess that's our lives in a nutshell. It's like, how do you, well, shit happens sometimes and you don't, you, you don't always have a clear way out. You got to adapt and, and use your ingenuity along the way. Yeah, for sure. It's, you know, that's kind of the story of our lives. It's like, here's our situation now. Here's what we want to do. You, you got to figure it out. Yeah. My, uh, we, we like camping. And years ago, I bought a toy hauler. Um, and a toy hauler is an RV trailer that has a, a big back door that opens and closes like a car trailer does. Yeah. So you pull in your razor, your, your you know, ATVs inside and get to your camping spot. Well, for me, the, the back door turns into a ramp. And that's how I get in and out of the razor. Well, um, the girlfriend I had when I bought it, we parted company. And so now I'm on my own and the big back door, I can't lift it. So I'm like, well, how the hell do I figure out how to do this on my own so that I don't have to have somebody with me every time. So I ended up taking an ATV winch and hooking up a pulley and a cable that now will close the door. Nice. And the, the funniest part about the whole thing is when we go camping, especially with um, the accessible Okanagan groups, where we've got all of the handies all camping together, they all know when I'm opening and closing my door because they, they hear the noise of this winch. <laughs> and they always harass me about it because it's, it's really, it's really noisy. Every time I open and close at the campsite, I'm always, well, everybody's getting up now. So you grew up in uh, Merritt. You probably spent a lot of your time outdoors camping and fishing. Who was your partner in crime in that? These days, you mean? No, when you, when you were a kid. 
growing up. Well, my that was our family thing to do. Yeah. Uh, probably at least half the weekends through the summer, we jump in the. Uh, it was the trucking camper, and we go out camping, and uh, that was what we did. We had you know dirt bikes, and we go fishing. And when I got older. I'd be able to get up in the morning, crawl out of the tent if I wasn't sleeping in the camp with mom and dad, go over to the tin boat, and I'd go out trolling around my Ford Fender and trying to catch fish. Right on. So now uh, I use a kayak um, when I'm fishing more than I use the tin boat just because it's it's fast, it's small, and it's easy to move around and stuff. And the, the kayak adaptions were interesting. What's some of your uh, your favorite camping fishing spots or are you allowed to divulge that uh well around here um i think it's about 19 kilometers probably about 25 from my house is a little lake called isabel okay and um it's the lake itself has actually been adapted for for dudes in chairs um, it's got a like a three kilometer loop around the lake that you can wheel around if you want. Wow. Um, and it's got uh, it's got a dock that's set up that you can wheel out to the dock and sit on the dock and fish right off the dock if you like. They even have a section of the dock that's got um, a part that's easy to get in on boats where they've removed the handrail. They've got a chain that'll cross it. You can open up specifically for for handy guys to. Uh, getting in the boats. We don't use it much. I I like my kayak just so I can cruise around fishing and that kind of stuff. So I guess you're not really tent camping anymore. Did you make any uh, customizations to your toy hauler other than the ramp uh, adaption? Well, this toy hauler was, I, I picked it because it was really easy. Um, toy haulers typically have the rear section where you park all your, you know, your ATVs, motorbikes. They have a section where the couches on the sides of each wall will fold up against the wall. Okay. Clear space. And the tables, you can lift up out of the floor and tuck them away. You have this huge open section at the back. Well, for me, what it meant was I put down one couch and one table, but leave the other ones up. So I have a, a walkway that I can always get past. So in the end, the worst part was one of the couches would, when it's folded up, would block a window. So I just removed it completely. So that one is just stored away in my basement. And one of the other challenges was the washroom has a narrow little door to get into the toilet and the, the tub. And it's, you know, I can, I can reach in and I can reach the toilet but I can't transfer that far. So what I ended up doing was I got a mechanic stool, a little short castered stool yeah. transfer onto, and I just pushed myself by hand the, I don't know, foot and a half, two feet back to the toilet. And then from there, I can just lift myself to the toilet. Right. Push the stool out of the way. And I can transfer from the toilet to the tub shower that's right beside it. Um, and so long story short, I'm not going to have something for camping that doesn't have a toilet, a toilet and a shower. Right. So I uh, got Crohn's, um, and I didn't realize what it was. And the doctors took a long time trying to figure out what it was. 
not having full sensation, I couldn't report, here's what I'm feeling. Okay. Uh, turns out I had a major blockage in, in the intestines. Um, they had to do surgery to uh, take a section out of my bowels and reconnect it. And what the problem with that was uh, the top of the large intestine, they had to remove the sphincter and reconnect it. So things go all the way through the small intestine and they can dump right into the large. Yeah. In the beginning, I had a lot of loose, wet stool issues um, that I had to deal with. And now it, it causes, because bathroom issues weren't enough fun for people with spinal cord injuries, when you add that to the whole mix, it, it adds a whole new level of a pain in the ass. Oh, God. Yeah, I can imagine. So maybe more f- frequent now or um, because you have a shorter intestine or does well, that work? What happens is all of the stool that goes through the, uh, the small intestine will immediately dump right into large where before there's a sphincter up top and I think it would stay in there longer. Oh, uh, Okay. Stuff that ends up in the large would be a little bit uh, firmer, we'll call it. Okay. Uh, so what the doctor did was they prescribed me, uh, it's a powder um, that you drink, and it sort of will, it'll, it'll dry up or it'll cause more firm stool. Right. That's helped a ton. Yeah. But it's, uh, it, it, you know, the days you... I don't know if you just eat the wrong thing and it just rips right through you. Yeah. Uh, they're more of a problem for me, I think, than they used to be. Right. So any um, sort of things uh, that people listening, you could say that would sort of tell them to watch out if they are having bowel issues, like how do you recognize your Crohn's and what's some of the process you had to go through there? Well, it was. Uh, it started out where, so you, you know, your stomach will growl if you're hungry. In the beginning, the growling was so loud that I'd be in the gymnasium practicing, you know, with the guys playing basketball, and my stomach would growl, and Buddy that's five feet away from me in the gymnasium would look at me and go, was, was that your stomach? And I'm like, I know, crazy, right? Because it sounds like a, a really intense hunger growl. Okay. That's where it started, but it was just noise and it was no big deal. And as it progressed, it got, um, I started feeling a little sick and my, my, uh, what was happening that was the big trigger that something was wrong? Can't quite remember, but my, it, the blockage was getting so intense that it was causing me to throw back up whatever I ate. Oh. It was getting stuck. And so I was starting to throw stuff up and I was starting to not look good. I ended up, this was the thing that triggered me to actually get a doctor in Kamloops. And a friend referred me that knew the doctor, somebody in the medical field, um, referred me to this doctor. And the doctor said at the time that he would take me on. So in the end, we just started doing tests. They started with uh, ultrasound stuff. They started with upper GI scopes. Because I was throwing up, they were thinking, I think, that it was stomach-related. And in the end, what they finally did, and this got to the point where I was eating, like, I could eat something really mild, like like a half a box of Kraft Dinner. I could eat And if I went to bed and lied down, I wouldn't throw it up. If I stayed upright, I would. 
Um, that was what I would eat for the day. And I, I wouldn't eat in the morning because I didn't want to throw up when I was at work and all this stuff. But I'd, sometimes I'd wake up in the morning, I'd, I'd be in the shower, and I'd be throwing up just like liquid and bile and, and nothing. Oh, wow. And that was through the day. I would just be like, oh, I'm going to throw up. So I'd rip to the bathroom. I'd throw up a little nothing. I'd come back to work. And a few hours later, I might have to throw up again. So in the end, what they did was they gave me a barium swallow um, where you drink this. It looks like a, you know, a, a yeah. McDonald's cup of looks like latex paint. Yeah. So this stuff and they do an x-ray and watch how it goes through your, your digestive system. And that day they finally said after four, four and a half hours of trying to watch this stuff move. And it just wasn't after about a half dozen x-rays, they said, you're going to have to go to emerge and talk to the surgeon. You've got a major blockage. So I went and they said, uh, yeah, we're not going to know what it is until we get in there. It could be cancer. It could be, you know, some kind of a twist in your intestines. It could be Crohn's, but we won't know until we get in there and do surgery. I'm like, dude, I came in for an x-ray. And now I don't get to go home because I have to have surgery. Wow. And that was, that was kind of a rough deal. Right after they removed it, I was fine again. Felt great. Um, could eat anything all over again. But the problem was the bowel issues. Now I just wanted to just tear right through you. And wet bowel um, issues were so common in the beginning. Yeah. So being close to the shitter is important now. Well, especially with... Because stuff can set me off, and I don't know why or when, but out camping, you're in the middle of nowhere. Cleanup is difficult without a shower. Oh, yeah. So that one's pretty mandatory for me now. So you have these, uh, you have these great big uh, camping trips with uh, accessible Okanagan. Used to. Uh, oh, you're not out? Oh, I guess, yeah, because of COVID. I stopped everything. I saw some pictures, I think, that uh, James Heckner had posted. Or yeah, Looks sure. like you guys have some pretty, uh, pretty fun times. Yeah, it's a good time. It's, uh, I don't know how many guys that have done this because it was the first thing or first time they'd done it because of these groups happening. Yeah. They knew it was kind of safe. If all the other guys were out doing it, well, I can probably do it too. Yeah. Uh, and if, you know, if something went south, there was a bunch of guys that probably had answers that would could help yeah. out. And you're not going to feel embarrassed or awkward or anything because everybody goes through that shit. Well, it was, you Somewhere know. Somewhere or another. It was like sitting in the hallway at GF when you first got injured. Yeah. Poo there corner. Was, it's not on the table. You can talk about it. Yeah. Uh, that's what we called the, the intersection of the hallways, poo corner. Exactly. So uh, you've also uh, been uh, speaking to elementary and high school kids with the party program. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, the party program, it stands for Prevent Alcohol and Risk-Related Trauma in Youth. And I think it's, uh, I'm not going to say, it started a number of years ago at a, at a hospital setting where they just wanted to share some info. And it's grown into a program that's branched out to different areas across the country, I believe. I think it may have started in Ontario, maybe. I'd have to check. And a friend of mine was doing this years ago, and she did it once, and then she told me about it and said, you should come do this. I'm like, oh, what's it about? Well, I just go speak to high school kids. I'm like, ooh, I don't want to get up 
public speed cuts. I'm a shy guy by nature. This is way outside of my comfort zone. <laughs> so I said, well, I'll come watch one. So she, I came and watched and watched her do it. And the, the people in the program, the coordinators and her, they said, you should, you should do it. You should share your story. It's, it's useful. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'll give it a try. And I was like, I was the kid in high school when you had to do a speech in your English class. I, I dreaded that day more than any other day in the school year, sitting up in front of the class, talking to the class. But when I tried it, all I had to do was just tell my story. And that was pretty easy because I knew it well. I was probably three years post-injury at that time. And uh, just sort of went through the, the what happened, why it happened, what we did beforehand, and what led to the situation that caused our car crash, how we messed up, what we did different, and then what, what the hospital situation was like, what GF was like, what recovery was like, and what life was like back living sort of on my own, dealing with that kind of stuff. And yeah. it, was, it was an odd thing because the first time I told the story, now at this point, people ask all the time, what happened or so you, you told the story a bunch of times but when i did it this particular time um it was unique in that i started from the very beginning and i step by step went through the process and it was the most real and reliving of that whole event that i'd actually done mentally myself and i got to the point where i told these kids that my friend that was driving the vehicle that he was killed. Um, and it, it cracked me up. Um, I had to I had a moment and pause because I was like, you know, on the verge of tears. And the kids in the group, you could see a number of them start to cry. And I'm like, holy shit, this actually can make a difference. Yeah. Paying attention. They're, it's not like their parents are talking to them and say, you shouldn't do this because this is what could happen. This is just some random guy that's telling you this is what happened. This was, you know, what, you know, I lived through. So they can't deny it. They can't. And they, I think it makes a difference. Yeah. They, they actually listen and pay attention. We did that for about, I think it was 14 years. Here at Callum's. Um, I, I went on my lunch hours um, once a week and the high school kids were at the hospital and, they were there for the day and I would talk to them as an injury survivor and tell them, you know, my story about what went on and here's how we screwed up and think about the stuff you guys do in your life that doesn't put you in this situation. Yeah. It was good. They, they say we talked to 12 to 13,000 kids over the years, one classroom at a time. What, what is your, your story on in Cole's notes? Cole's notes was uh, a buddy of mine had this lifted up, highly modified four-wheel drive truck. It was car show sort of quality of, of vehicle. And he had it at the car show in Kamloops, and we went back from Merritt. We picked the truck up and took it back home. He won first place in his class, and we had bought a two-sixer of Crown Royal. That weekend, that we thought we might go to a party and do something different rather than just drink some beer. But because of the stuff was going on, we never drank it. It was sitting at his house. And we drove around. We picked up some two other guys. There was four of us. And uh, 
Um, he said to me, do you want to go back to my place and drink that rye? We'll have a sauna. And I'm like, oh, shit. I got to work tomorrow, but I can go to work from your house. No big deal. So we went back to his place and him split the two six a crown in his sauna in about 15 or 20 minutes. We just passed the bottle back and forth. Oh, um, and then somewhere in there, I, I remember having a shower after the sauna and getting dressed, but I don't remember what happened after that. But they say that we decided to go look for a party in Merritt on Sunday night. <laughs> we didn't find one. No. We weren't allowed to go to that one. And he ended up taking a 40-kilometer corner at about 110 kilometers an hour. Now, this truck had 40-inch tall mud tires, yeah. uh, 12 inches of suspension lift. And the truck didn't quite handle like a Ferrari. <laughs> it drifted through the oncoming lane into the ditch on the other side of the road. And it started the truck to roll. And when it rolled, um, all the glass got busted out of the cab my door got popped open and I got launched out of the truck. And he had these molded fiberglass racing bucket seats that you'll see ironically in a drag car. Yeah. Where the big five point racing harnesses with those standard seatbelts won't work. Well, he didn't have the money to buy those after spending like 50 grand on this truck. So nobody's wearing a seatbelt. So at some point we all got thrown out of the vehicle and I got, I was fine. I got launched out of the vehicle. I was probably fine right until I hit the ground. And when I hit the ground, that's when I, when I broke my back and, and did all the damage. Wow. Yeah. So talking to all these kids, telling them this story, what, what, is, what do you feel like the party program has done for you? For me, I think... So I always thought if, if we made a difference for one kid in, <clears throat> in all those years, that would be worth it. And for me, so we screwed up. You know, we, we, we caused our crash. We made the poor choices. We, you know, there's drinking and driving, no seatbelts. We made the choices that made that crash happen and the injuries happen the way they did. And all the people, be it, doctors, paramedics, all those guys, they reached out to us and they helped us out. Yeah, they were getting paid. It was their job, but they didn't have to do it. And I always felt guilty for putting my parents through that, what they had to deal with and how it affected their lives. My brother and, you know, my family suffered right along with me. Yeah. So for me, it was giving back a little bit and maybe making that difference in, in one kid's life. <clears throat> would make you know enough difference what are some of the changes that you uh that you see are you noticing kids attitudes around drinking and driving changing uh, i feel like i notice that with my daughters i i think so and i think society is a lot smarter about it mm -hmm. you know i back even before our time I think having a few drinks and whatever was no big deal. I, I think it was fairly commonplace. Yeah. Now I think people think about if they're going to drink like at all, um, they're going to think about, well, what do we do driving home after that? How's that going to look? And I, I think that's a more conscious, you know, thought of ahead of time situation than, than used to be the case. I think that's what I see from, 
the people I deal with in, in life anyways. You're still working for SCIBC, correct? Well, I'm, I'm a volunteer now. Yeah. Yeah. I was in architecture for 15 years and then I, I got retired through some personal issues and, and stuff at the, in work. So I, I retired, but, uh, I stayed involved in, uh, you know, wheelchair basketball with the programs and it's adapted into counts adapted sports now. And I was always involved with the peer stuff. So I was, I felt like I was a guy that I I had all these years in their chair and I could share some of my experiences with these new guys at Ranger and it happened through wheelchair basketball and and that kind of stuff. And then uh, spinal cord injury BC started these, these peer coffee groups. So I was, I was at all the coffee groups. Um, we had a number of different coordinators doing the cantaloupes thing. And then when the last guy finished, um, I, I started volunteering. Well, I was helping him before he was finished is what sort of transitioned that. And I just started helping with the, the cantaloupe stuff and setting up meetings and doing that kind of stuff. Um, I, I think there's us, us old guys. I've been wheeling now for more than 30 years. I can share some experiences with, with new guys that simple stuff that I, I just stuff I live every day, but mm-hmm. for them, it's, it's brand new. And my little bit of info can make some major thing for them easier, I hope. And the, the peer stuff I, I think is making a huge impact where I see guys doing more stuff. Like I, we were talking about the camping stuff without these, these peer groups where these guys are going out camping. It gives this new guy some confidence that, yeah, maybe I'll go give this shot to. Right. They if they're doing it on their own so easily. For those who don't know what they are, um, what, what, what happens in, in one of these sessions? Well, right now, it's because of COVID. Let's go back pre-COVID. Right now, COVID is all we're doing is Zoom meetings. Yeah. Just because of, of what's going on. Previously, we would have a, a coffee group. Um, at a restaurant or something in town and people would just show up and we'd just sit around and just we just hang out yeah the hangout is it's with your peers and people that know the kind of stuff you're dealing with and if something has come up for you maybe you're ordering a new chair and you want to see what the other guys chairs look like and why they've chosen what they have Um, bullshit about the regular stuff in life but it's the regular stuff that our unique little audience deals with. Do you have any, any quads in your group? Oh yeah. There's, there's quads, amputees, um, MS. We don't care. We'll take anybody. (laughs) Uh, What's this, what's the sense you're getting from those that require care? Have you noticed uh, people struggling to find adequate uh, assistance or care these days? I'm not sure it's always been a struggle that I know. I mean, I've never had to look for it. So this is just what I've heard from, you know, yeah. friends and peers and stuff. Um, I, I think it's always been a struggle. The, the quality of, of the care can change availability. The guy that phones up is like, oh, I can't come in today. And now you're stuck because you don't, you know, you don't know where to pull from to get the, the next person's help. And I don't know, I don't know how COVID 
has changed this whole thing, if it has at all, I, I'm not really sure. I don't envy what people have to deal with right now in that situation regarding COVID, if it has changed. Yeah. I feel like maybe we're, we're there's light at the end of the tunnel. Um, I really hope there is. I hope things go back to some kind of a, a normal. Yeah. What do you, uh, what do you think about that? Well, I said it before about how I thought this summer was going to, we're going to turn the corner and life's going to get back to more normal. But it seems like when restrictions get lifted, the world thinks it's back to pre COVID normal. Yeah. And not making those smart choices. And then suddenly we're breaking new records. Well, we're breaking new records because we're allowed to do more stuff and people are just going back to the way they were. So the government has to claw back stuff a second time and that upsets people because they got some back, but then they're taking away again. And the government's just doing what they have to do based on the statistics of what's going on. Yeah. Is this going to be our new normal? It's hard to say. Yeah, it's a tough one. We were, I was just telling you before this that I was putting an email out to our, our accounts of that to sports group about who would be interested in starting our basketball practices again this September. We haven't done it now for a couple of years. And so we're looking at starting again, but it's going to require that you have double vaccinations. That's through the tournament capital of Kamloops. Um, tournament center of Kamloops is requirements that are double vaccinated is required for people in sporting groups. Okay. We're going to have to reach out to our group and say, okay, who is double vaccinated and who's wanting to come do this? Um, we may not get the numbers that make it justifiable to justify the expense of the rental if we don't have the people out. Yeah. Because I know of a few people in our, our peer group that don't have their vaccinations yet. Is that uh, because they don't want to or? I'm not sure there are personal reasons of why. Um, yeah. Guessing at this point, if you don't have your vaccines, it's because you've chosen to not go that route. Whether it's your personal reasons behind the whole thing, if, if there's somebody that reads into all this internet, you know, conspiracy stuff, I'm not sure. Yeah. But and it's unfortunate. They, they'd be people that come out, they would play. They would come to practices, but now they haven't had their vaccines that they would be, you know, shut out from this. Mm -hmm. And it, it affects our numbers. And if we don't have numbers, we can't justify, Count Stats of Sports can't justify the expense if they don't have the people out to use it. Yeah. It, it could mean another year where we don't have practices um, just simply based on numbers. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. Or that would be too bad. <laughs> yeah, well, cross our fingers and hopefully there is enough interest. And there, there's the, so there's the people that can't go because of, you know, they don't have their vaccine. There's the people that aren't comfortable doing stuff in groups um, because the, the fear of getting COVID. Um, they don't want to go down that road. And I've heard at the beginning of COVID where there was a quad that has had pneumonia twice and they didn't want COVID under any circumstances because 
it could be, I don't want to say it, but it could be a death sentence. Absolutely. And so they're, they were fearing, you know, at a much higher level than I was um, about the whole situation. So it, it's hard to say what's going to happen yeah. with, with our, our numbers in this situation. So you said you've been pushing now for over 30 years. How, how's your shoulders holding out? The shoulders are doing well. Um, I've not had a lot of issue. I'm having a little issue in the wrists. Numbness. I noticed, I think I told you before, that I ride a, a Can-Am Spider motorcycle. Yeah. Vibration from the handlebars um, is, is making my hands go a little bit numb. So I've got to take a hand off and sort of shake it out to get some blood flow back. So I'm noticing that the last few years. Um, but the biggest deal for me that I'm dealing with right now is, is lower back pain. Okay. Now, I shouldn't feel my lower back. I'm a complete T4 spinal cord injury, Asia, Asia A for 30 years, as far as I know. Yeah. But now I'm having lower back pain. Um, and it turns out that I'm getting severe disc degeneration in my lower back. Um, and I'm dealing with some pain that's causing me to lose sleep because of it, which makes no sense, but it, it's there. Yeah. So, after all these years, I'm actually a fragment incomplete um, in that SCI stuff. Wow, because I'm like, uh, I feel everything internally, but nothing externally. Right. So yeah, the lower back pain, it, it's always kind of been there. And I'm just like, right, you're not supposed to f sit 15 hours a day in a wheelchair. Yeah. I've got back pain that just, you know, it makes sense. But I've just kind of ignored it. I don't think much about it. It's just it's kind of there. But it's gotten significant enough that it's affecting my sleep. Yeah. And we've done a bunch of imaging and that kind of stuff on my back. And sure enough that the discs are 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 in really bad shape. Um, so I don't know what's going to look like from here on. I, I don't want to be the guy that, the doctors just want you to take a pill. Yeah. Take, take this pill for, for, take this pill for spasms. Well, these are new spasms. What's causing them? Well, we'll just take a spill and, and that'll stop the spasms. Yeah. I'm the guy that wants to know why it's happening. I don't want a bandaid to cover up the why it's happening. I want to know what's going on. Yeah. So I've got all this disc stuff in my back and it doesn't sound like they can do surgical repairs on them quite yet. I've heard of one fellow that's went to Germany to have surgery done on his back, but it's all out of pocket and the expense is significant. Like many, many tens of thousands of dollars. Oh, so he hasn't done it yet though. I think he has. Oh, yeah. do you know the outcome? Uh, it's pretty new. I think he had surgery maybe less than a month ago and I haven't heard back from him what kind of, result is is happening in the end so with all this pain that you're feeling how, how are you managing it in the beginning the um the, the physiatrist put me on a medication and what it would do was it would put me into a deeper sleep and it would help with muscle spasm and the thinking the the, the muscle spasms were triggered by the pain and discomfort 
but the spasms trigger more discomfort. That makes sense. But the drug that they had me on was not a good drug. It was clonazepam. Um, that's uh, it's, it's not a good drug to be on. So we we talked to a different fella, and he's got me on Lyrica, which is I think for pain. You as well. Yeah. So I take a small dose of Lyrica right at bedtime. That sort of helps me through the night, just so I can sleep. Yeah. Day I can I just ignore it like I have been doing. Um, because that was the biggest factor was it was affecting sleep. Yeah. To the point where I was not like sleeping. If I got four hours of sleep in a night, um, I was lucky. I hear you, man. That is missing sleep. I think is number one worst thing. If you consistently are not sleeping, it it affects everything. Yeah. Right, right to your from your bowels to your pain to your whatever it is. Like once you're sleep deprived and functioning on on a minimum amount of sleep, you're your brain isn't functioning properly. Yeah, it was affecting you know, energy, comfort, and then interactions with the family. You know, yeah. you, everybody was on edge all the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I hear you. I, I, I know that firsthand. Here's an interesting question maybe for you. as a, And this is coming from a quadriplegic. As a para, do you feel like you're expected to sort of keep up in ways that were have been detrimental to your long-term health and well-being? I'm not exactly sure. Sort of like a code of, I don't know, and maybe this is just me as a quadriplegic, but I see, I feel like a lot of the time paras have a very I'm not disabled sort of attitude. Like I don't have a disability. Um, I, I function fine. I'm, you know, I have nothing wrong with me. Leave me alone. I'm not a para. Well, it's funny you say that. So when I, when I first got injured, so again, I was injured at 19, right? So I get home from GF and I'm 20. And uh, in the beginning, you're like, Oh, you should go play wheelchair basketball. You, you should play wheelchair basketball. You should cantaloupes. They have wheelchair basketball. And I'm like, just because I'm in a chair now, I'm not going to go play all the cripple sports. I was into my dirt bike and my mountain bike and hunting and fishing and, and that kind of stuff. And uh, so I, I didn't want to, you know, get involved with all the wheelchair stuff. I didn't shun it. And I didn't shun other guys in chairs because the spinal cord injury BC guy or BCPA back then guy would, would reach out to me and we'd talk. But when I moved to Kamloops, he kept bugging me about coming to play wheelchair basketball. And he told me, it's like, you know, you know, we, we just want people. We need numbers. We want to, we want a good practice with a lot of guys to play. So I told him, all right, I'll come try it out. If I don't like it, I don't want to hear you talking about it again, but I'll give it a try. And at that point, um, now it was like more than a year into this whole thing. And, my, my, my little pear belly was getting a little bigger. <laughs> the things you could do for exercise were not that, that common back then. So I'm like, okay, I'll go try wheelchair basketball. And, you know, it's exercise. But what I realized was, it, yes, it was exercise, but it was also camaraderie. It was that peer thing. You're, yeah. you're connecting with the peers in the community that, 
they know what's going on. And for more than a year, I'd been kind of on my own in merit, not, you know, doing the wheelchair thing, but I'm also not talking to other guys in chairs like you did when you were in GF. So that, that was kind of cool, getting reconnected with other peers in the community. So, you know, I, I, drag racing was the big turning point for me. That was one of the getting back to my life things that I didn't think I'd be able to do again. And it got to the point where I added a shop onto my house. I had a 40 by 40 shop that had welders, oh, nice. pipe benders, and band saws where I could do all my own work in my shop. You know, I pulled a big block Chevy and transmission out of my Vega wagon by myself and had the thing sitting on the floor in two hours. Nice. Little old guy in a wheelchair. Yeah. So, you know, I kind of started to do more and more stuff. And I could set up more and more stuff. I could do it on my own. So, you know, I, I've been the guy that I hand cycle. And I play wheelchair tennis. And I've tried wheelchair curling. And tried rugby. And play basketball. And I do all the stuff because I can. And it's exercise. And it's a way to get out and, you know, meet people and talk with people and stuff. So do I do too much? I used to go winter snowmobiling. I, I lived on 65 acres where we had four feet of snow and I would get on my sled and I've been, I've been places up in the Coquihalla that a guy in a wheelchair has no business being, but I did it with a group of my, my cousins and friends that if I got into some shit, they would, you know, get me out of trouble. If I got my sled stuck, they would just, you know, help me out or they'd pick my ass up and throw me in the snow dig my sled out and then lift me back on my sled and away we go. But I had a, a good group of friends that I could, you know, count on to do that kind of stuff. So should I have rode a snowmobile and pounded it down a gravel road, beating the shit out of my back where the other guys would just stand up and use their legs where I'm just, you know, getting pounded on the seat. Is that yeah. what left my discs in my back? I know it didn't help. Yeah. But like I said, I've been up in the Coquihalla and I've seen beautiful stuff that most people in the world won't get to see. Yeah. Guys in chairs don't have the opportunity to go check out. So, so you're, you're, uh, you're a pioneer and a trailblazer who is making it possible for other people to see that there are no limitations and that you can, so how does Tyler see himself as an aging guy with an SCI? Uh, well, it's a funny story. So I, I maybe told you about earlier. We, we got those clip-on front drives that clip onto the front of the chair that give you the little motorcycle handles and the motor. Yeah, yeah. That's been a bit of our escape from COVID. Um, Are you in part of that, uh, that group with the leathers and all that? Um, uh no, yes, but no. I, I didn't get my, my own leathers. Um, you, had, you have to get uh, initiated first. I probably would have, yeah. No, we, they offered it, but the cost of the leathers was like, no. <laughs> I, not, not, you guys go ahead, but I, I'm good. But it, it's, been, it's been the thing we've kind of done is the front drives. Yeah. Get out and just cruise around and, and get out of the house and go do some stuff you know, with the guys. It's been, it's been a lot of fun, but I, I use that goofy little front drive practically more than I ever thought I would. 
like my my house that I'm in now is it's it's almost an acre. So there's a lot of weed eating to do, and I've got to ride a lawnmower that I drive around and mow. But weed eating has always been a pain in the ass because you know you put the weed eat on your lap, you roll it out to where you weed eat, but you can reach about four feet. Well, then you got to put it back on your lap, move ahead three feet, start again, and you knock it off your lap and you pick the damn thing back up. Yeah. I can one hand on the weed eater and one hand on the front drive and I can drive around as I'm weed eating. So it's actually <laughs> sort of functional. Right on. Instead of, you know, a five gallon jerry can that I have to fill up with gas and load in and out of the car and, you know, put an empty jerry can on your lap and roll across the grass and knock it off your lap and three or four times on the way to the car. And then the last time you're so pissed off, you pick it up and you just throw that jerry can the last 20 feet to the car, load it in the car, transfer into the car, load the chair in, drive to the gas station, transfer out, take the chair, all that bullshit just to fill up a jerry can. Yeah. I just sat it on my lap and I drove the two kilometers to the gas station on the front drive. <laughs> Pump, drove home and yeah. It was, it, was, and it was easy, it was funny, and the looks you get are hilarious. Oh, I can imagine. You got to get one of those uh, Roomba things, a thing that goes around. I saw one in my neighborhood the other day. A guy was, uh, well, I didn't see the guy. I just saw the thing driving around on his lawn. There, there, is there a Roomba lawnmower now? There yeah, be. apparently. I think Husqvarna makes one. Oh, is that right? Yeah. I don't know. I kind of, I kind of like the lawnmower. It's kind of fun. Yeah, it is fun. A Roomba snowblower that'd be kind of good. Then you don't get cold. How how do you do that? Snowblowing. My snowblower. It's a gas guy, of course, so it's all self-propelled. And I've taken a motorcycle tie down and I loop it through my frame of my chair. Yeah. Hook it onto the the uh, snowblower. So the snowblower is actually pulling my ass around behind it. <laughs> I'm just behind it steering and, you know, turning it off and on. Um, but it works pretty good. My driveway is pretty big. I used to use an ATV with a, with a blade on it. Yeah. And I had to push the snow into the yard, out into the grass. Okay. It drops the snow at the end of the blade. Well, your driveway gets narrower and narrower. Narrower, yeah. The snowblower is good because it can, all I have to do is the driveway and it throws the snow 30 feet in the yard and I don't have to worry about it. Beautiful. Works pretty good. Ty, it's been uh, awesome talking to you. Do you have any words of wisdom you want to leave me with? Words of wisdom. I, I hope that this whole COVID thing, we get the new normal figured out. Life can go back to some kind of regular thing where we're just ignoring this and living life. I, I don't think it's going to change instantly. I want it to. Yeah, it, it's like our, our our spinal cord injury. Life happened. It's not going to change. We just have to figure out how we're going to deal with it from here on out. Yeah, adapt. I went and voted uh, yesterday, and again, it was at the church, you know, a, a kilometer down the road. So I took the front drive because I didn't want to drive and deal with parking and all that crap. And when I got there, I had people run out to me. It's like, um are you going to be able to get that across the threshold on the door? I'm like, oh, yeah, no problem. Are you sure? It's pretty big. I'm like, yeah, I'm good. And you hit it, you do kind of a wheelie, and they all wow. And then they all want to know about this 
crazy little front drive attachment and how it all works. And, and then it was the question, can you get into the voting booth with, I'm like, I'll just clip it off. And I zipped it off and pushed it away. Like, Oh, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and it's cool. The technology is coming out with these new things. And yeah. Kind of cool. We, we got to live. We got to figure out what the new normal is and have a little patience to see where this ends up. And I guess we are, you and I know what a learning about the new normal means. So yeah, we've already got experience there. Yeah. This, this new normal is pretty minor compared to, to what we had to go through. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for sharing your time with me, man. I really enjoyed talking to you and listening to your stories because you got lots of cool things to talk about. Yeah, I never thought that. I'm just just a guy living life. Just a guy living life, just like everybody else. Thanks to Tyler for joining me on today's show. Visit Quad Life Facebook page for more information about new episodes and some Quad Life gear in the gift shop. As always, life happens, and when it does, it's okay. Just shit your pants and get back out there.